from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, we hear about the Green Schools Conference that recently took place in New Orleans, aimed at making school buildings more resilient, efficient, and environmentally friendly. Plus, with the World Baseball Classic underway, former MLB pitcher and Louisianan Jeremy Bleich tells us what to expect and gives us some insight on his time playing with Team Israel. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to catch up on This Week in Politics with Stephanie Grace columnist and editorial director for the Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Stephanie, there were some interesting developments in two big stories you're following. First, can you bring us up to date on what's happening in the race for governor? Well, it was um, an eventful week. Uh, One, two new entrants, one expected, one not expected. So the one that was expected was is Sean Wilson. He's a Democrat. He has been the head of the Department of Transportation for John Bell Edwards up until he resigned in order to run for governor. Uh, Very quickly, the governor turned around and endorsed him, as did Congressman Troy Carter. He's the Democrat. You know, if the kind of expectation is it's going to be a Republican years. Of course, John Bell Edwards is a Democrat. Sean Wilson is the guy who will carry the banner. Um, for the Democrats. Of course, we have an open primary system. That doesn't mean we will have a Democrat versus a Republican in the primary. But if the party, if Democratic voters kind of coalesce around him, that makes it likely because there are a bunch of Republicans running. So one Democrat could, you know, easily grab one of the runoff spots and, and perhaps even finish in first and then face a Republican and probably be an underdog. Um, the other one is, uh, this was unexpected. Um, Stephen Wagaspak, who is not a household name in, to the general public, I'd say, but is a household name for people in politics. He has been the head of the Louisiana Association of Business and Industry, commonly called Lobby, which is the big business lobby, very powerful in Baton Rouge. He was also a top aide to Governor Bobby Jindal. And he... Um, It's a little out of nowhere for a lot of us, I will say, I think also for some of the other Republican candidates, because exactly a week before he announced last Thursday, he hosted the other Republican candidates. He interviewed them at Lobby's annual meeting um, and did not at all let on that he was thinking of running against them. Um, and, And what seemed to trigger it is that Congressman Garrett Graves, who has been considering running decided, announced this week that he would not run. And there seemed to be a little bit of a handoff there that when Garrett Graves said he wasn't going to run, he said the field will get bright, will brighten in a few days. And then in a few days, there was Steve Wagaspak. And they're friends. They worked together in the Jindal administration. They both could appeal to this constituency that is kind of has been out there looking for a candidate, the kind of Republican centrist, business oriented anybody but Landry constituency. Landry, of course, being the Attorney General, Jeff Landry, who is running very much on a social issues platform. Wow. Really, really been a busy week. Well, busy week. Yes. (laughs) My God. In the recall campaign against New Orleans Mayor Latoya Cantrell, your paper published an interesting analysis of signatures obtained through a public records request. What did we learn? Well, um, we were not able to obtain all of the signatures that were submitted to the Registrar of Voters. Um, There's been a court battle actually over the uh, 
the the people running the recall releasing all of the information but we got some of it and my colleagues worked you know really hard to analyze thousands of signatures and we don't know whether there are enough signatures they were able to kind of estimate that there are some you know over 30,000 the goal is 45,000 but we don't have all the sheets so we we don't know that this means they didn't meet their threshold Probably about 14% might be invalid. That is kind of in what happens in recall uh, petitions nationwide, people say. Um, but one of the interesting nuggets was they did kind of a geographical analysis and demographic analysis of the signatures. And it's not really surprising, but it's pretty stark that the um, a lot more white voters than black voters signed these petitions. Um about 70% of the uh, signatures that that they were able to view is the estimate. And again, it's not that's not surprising if you kind of followed the news and saw the video clips of lines and lines and people at Lakeview to sign the signature, to sign the petition. Um, Lakeview is actually where Latoya Cantrell performed worst when she ran for election. It's a, you know, it's a somewhat Republican area. Um, but, you know, this kind of signals, I think, something that we already knew, which is that if the recall, if there actually is a recall vote, which we still don't know, it's going to be racially divisive. Stephanie Grace, columnist and editorial director for The Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate. Thanks so much for being here. OK, thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Earlier this month, the Green Schools Conference convened in New Orleans, bringing together students, parents, and educators to advocate for more sustainability in school buildings. Topics span from green buildings, resilience, zero waste, energy efficiency, and decarbonization. Anissa Hemming is the director for the Center for Green Schools, which organized the conference, and she joins us now for more. Anissa, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. To start, can you just define a green school for us? What exactly does that term mean? Yeah, we define a green school by three pillars that are used by the U.S. Department of Education. They have a Green Ribbon Schools Award, and they um, have settled on a definition that includes environmental impact. So that's energy, water, waste impact, um, health and wellness, and environmental and sustainability literacy among students. And can you tell us more about this year's conference in New Orleans? What were some of the main goals that you focused on? The conference this year was really designed to give people who do this kind of work in schools uh, uh, some inspiration, breath of fresh air, <laughs> a little bit of uh, energizing feeling as they head back in. People who work in schools have had a really rough few years, as we all know. Um, anyone who has loved ones who work in schools um, knows that this is a pretty tough time to be an educator, to be someone that, you know, works in a district office, um, especially when it comes to issues like fighting climate change and um, doing what we can to, um, you know, protect the health and well-being of, of students and staff. The, those are pretty weighty issues. And um, so we wanted to give the people who attended the conference uh, some inspiration and also the tools that they need to address those really important topics within their schools. 
Yeah, as the daughter of an educator, I definitely know just how difficult the last few years have been. Well, this conference wasn't just for adults, students were also involved. So can you tell me a little bit about what the students were up to over the three days and why you think it's so important that they have a role in this transition to more sustainable schools? So we had a couple of students that were presenting at the conference, the students at Sacred Heart in New Orleans um, presented to attendees about their efforts related to zero waste at their school. Uh, We also had a student leader receive an award through our Best of Green Schools Award um, program. And he is a board member of the Boise School District in Idaho. He saw the district not acting toward um, fighting climate change in the in the way that he thought was necessary and the way that his his fellow students did. And so he ran for school board and he won. He beat an incumbent school board member. Um, and so we honored that um, that effort he went through and also the leadership he's showing um, at the conference. And he was also a speaker to the green school designers who were, um, in attendance about, you know, what the agency is for a designer, a school designer to do something about um, all these green school goals within the buildings that they're designing. We are speaking with Anissa Hemming, director for the Center for Green Schools. Anissa, I know that this conference also featured a panel of NOLA public school officials who discussed dealing with COVID in school and even going as far back as Hurricane Katrina. What did these guests have to say about transitioning to more sustainable schools and and why are green schools specifically important in New Orleans, given all of our climate concerns here? Yeah, on the second day of the conference, we had a panel discussion between Dr. Williams, the superintendent at um, NOLA Public Schools, Tiffany Delcor, who's the COO of the system, and then um, Dana Peterson of New Schools for New Orleans. And the three of them um, discussed you know, what they've seen in the school system over the last 20 years or so and, um, and what they see moving forward. Um, you know, I, I started my career in green schools in New Orleans. Um, actually, I worked um, with the Capitol office in the school system um, in the rebuilding after Katrina. And citizens in New Orleans have an experience with um, the changes that come with a changing climate in a way that other citizens around the country might not. So, you know, the the increase in number and, and strength of hurricanes and the um, uh, rising sea levels and the, those sorts of impacts, um, people in New Orleans, you know, feel those and um, have experienced them. Are there any examples of New Orleans schools that are already moving towards energy efficiency and resiliency? And, and if so, what are they doing? The schools that, uh, that um, were rebuilt after Hurricane Katrina and Rita, the, the ones that um, were built with the large single settlement, settlement from FEMA, um, were all built with increased energy efficiency and um, student health and wellness in mind. And those buildings, according to the school district, they just did the ribbon cutting on the final school within that particular master plan. Um, of school rebuilding. So it's a really momentous moment for the city when it comes to those newer school buildings and the and the re 
the renovated school buildings. So those buildings are made to make it easier to save money and keep kids healthy, but it really depends on how they're operated, whether that's happening or not. So, you know, you have to have the infrastructure, but then you also have to have um, the people within the buildings who, who understand how they work and, and can operate them sustainably and also can use them to teach students about these topics. I know that the Center for Green Schools has also published numerous reports and done case studies on sustainability and health in schools. Before we go, can you just tell us a little bit about some of these studies and what you found? Sure. Yeah, we've, we've done a lot of work recently on indoor air quality. Um, with COVID being an airborne disease, there is a real need to understand how indoor air quality is managed at schools around the country. So. We have done two national surveys of school districts to understand how they're implementing indoor air quality on the ground. We've also done some case study reports on how school districts are using American Rescue Plan funds to improve indoor air at their buildings. Um, And then we also do a lot of work to um, equip the people working on sustainability within school systems with what they need to do that work. We have some really easy to understand fact sheets for different types of indoor air quality improvements that they can use to explain what's happening in school buildings. Anissa Hemming is the director for the Center for Green Schools. Anissa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. March 8th marked the beginning of the 2023 World Baseball Classic, where athletes representing 20 countries face off in a tournament of America's pastime. For many, the World Baseball Classic isn't a chance to represent your home country, but rather a chance to connect with a new one. South American-raised players might find themselves on a team for Spain. Players from Aruba and Caracao often compete for the Netherlands. And for many Jewish Americans, they often find themselves wearing a yarmulke playing for Team Israel. The story of building Team Israel around Jewish-American ballplayers first picked up steam in 2017, when the team upset many top seeds to place sixth in the overall Classic. Jeremy Bleich was a pitcher on that team. He's also a native of Metairie, Louisiana, who played professionally for the Oakland A's and now works as a coordinator of Major League Pitching Operations for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He joins us now for more on his experience with Team Israel and what he hopes to see this time around. Jeremy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Can you start by telling me a little bit about growing up in Metairie, about the Jewish community you were a part of, and also how you discovered baseball? Sure. Um, I think uh, growing up in Metairie, for me, growing up in Metairie, I didn't, I didn't really know anything differently. Um, I, I was a th- I'm a third child, youngest of three, um, and my brother and sister were both born in New York, my parents. Um, both from from Brooklyn, the Brooklyn area. So for me, Metairie or New Orleans um, was was normal. Um, you know, definitely a different Jewish culture than like in New York. Um, in terms of learning the game of baseball, Judaism, Judaism and baseball probably are not um, don't always they're not like natural over overlapping groups of people. 
um, at least playing it. And, and I think I just had a, had a, uh, an interest at a young age and uh, I think I started playing at five or six and it just kind of developed from there. There was never any pressure from my parents. It was simply just me having fun and continuing to follow the, the path that it took me. Was it ever challenging for you to balance your Jewish identity with baseball ambitions? I know that sometimes Jews in the South can feel outnumbered and sometimes battling stereotypes of not being the most athletic people. So what was that like for you? I don't think it, I don't think I battled it. Uh, I don't think my, you know, my Jewish identity and my, my baseball identity, let's call it, uh, battled each other. Um, I think there's some moments where like non-judgmentally, you know, you're, there are prayers before games um, as a youngster, things like that, that you're just unsure of. Um, you don't want to upset the flow. You don't want to stand out. You don't want to be, you don't want to draw attention. Uh, but you also like, I don't, I don't know any prayers that, that, uh, that, some, that some of these teams were saying or at least being led through. So there were some small moments like that. It was a balancing act. And then once you kind of go through the ranks, um, I went to California for, for school, went to Stanford for school and at that point, it was pretty smooth sailing. Yeah, well, can you tell me a little bit about your career? Mm-hmm. I know you pitched with the Oakland A's, and just tell us a little bit more about your major league experience. Yeah, so I actually uh, played professionally for a lot parts of 11 years. Uh, 12 years, actually, um, was a first-round pick in 2008, and um, it took me uh, 10 years to get to the major leagues. But I was all over the minor leagues and playing professionally throughout that time. Saw the game from like a prospect level, prospect lens, a first round pick to a, you know, I couldn't get a job in affiliated baseball. I played independent ball for a period of time and then got to the big leagues after that. We are speaking with Jeremy Bleich, a former major league pitcher for the Oakland A's and current coordinator of major league pitching operations for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, let's talk about Team Israel. When did you find out about this team, and how did you find yourself part of it? I think Peter Kurt, Peter Kurtz is our the general manager. He um, reached out and and, and um, you know got in touch with him. The, the first original experience was the um, WBC experience. I think a qualifier. Um, I did not play, and I think it was in 2012 where they lost to Spain. I didn't play in that one, but the, the following one. In 17, I played in in Korea and Japan. Um, actually, it was in Brooklyn. We qualified and went to Korea and Japan. So it's a really great, um, you know, opportunity. It was it was weird. It was like starting something from scratch, you know, and it was odd. And there were certain certainly people that didn't understand, uh, you know, Jewish Americans. Why are you guys playing for Israel? And um, it's all within the rules, you know. It's all um, you have to be eligible for for citizenship. So. But it grew, and I think the people, the core group of individuals who started it, and then uh, in twelve, and then went on. Many of those guys were there in sixteen, uh, seventeen, I guess, sixteen and seventeen, and and got their first kind of taste of success, and then onto the Olympic journey um, two summers ago. It's really special. And while I, you know, your one of your original questions was like, kind of alluding to any like clashing of identities. While there, I didn't really experience much much of that, I would say, at least from the Judaism and, and baseball side, it still made things easier, right? Like if you're, on t- if you're on TV and you've won some games in the WBC, when you go back to spring training, you go back to your professional team, people are aware of it. They think it's cool. They want to ask more questions. And um, so it definitely was a fun, fun experience. It's fun to be associated and involved, involved in. 
Not only did the 2017 team play in the World Baseball Classic, but the players also traveled to Israel together on sort of a baseball birthright. Can you tell me a little bit about that trip? What was it like to go to Israel with a team of other Jewish American baseball players? And what was it like to have that experience captured in the documentary Heading Home, the Tale of Team Israel? It was great. It was a fun trip. I had been to Israel before. Many of the guys had not. Um, a lot of different, a lot of Jews from very different backgrounds and upbringings, and, pra- and level of practice, which is totally normal. Everyone, everyone's equal. Um, and I think it was it was very different from my actual birthright trip. This was a, a high end trip that uh, very nice restaurants, very very nice hotels, and with the, with the camera crew following us around. Really fun experience, jam packed with with um, activities and events and dinners and whatnot. But um, it was really really fun, and it's really cool to have a film to be able to kind of check in with if you, if, if any of those memories are ever forgotten. You know, you grew up in a congregation in a Jewish community here, but some of the other players grew up with very loose ties to Judaism, and it only really became relevant when they started playing for Team Israel. So. <laughs> What were some of those conversations like with players who came from all sorts of relationships with their Jewish identity? I think those conversations, while to outsiders may seem you know odd, how could how could all these people be involved with different backgrounds and upbringings? And but I think it's kind of a microcosm for how like communication should be: diverse viewpoints, diverse experiences coming together to um, share and hear what p- different people go through. So. Um, definitely some Israeli-born players, some some players with uh, one parent, one Jewish parent, one non-Jewish parent, some players with two Jewish parents, and and a, you know somewhat you know conservative or or Orthodox upbringing. Um, all, all kinds of experiences coming together to ask questions and understand why there are certain uh, practices and 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 stuff like that. Are there any like specific memories that you have of any of those conversations or interactions or just any like moments from being a part of Team Israel that you want to mention? You know, I think back to we first st- stood on the line for the national anthem for the Atikva in Korea. Uh, we did it in Brooklyn, and and as you can imagine, that was it, that was a qualifier. But it's Brooklyn; it's, you're still on your turf, especially like a lot of Jewish turf. And then you go to Korea and uh, you're standing next to your, you know, your brothers. You're, you're literally on another side of the world. There's something really um, strengthening and, and fulfilling to, to stand on that line. I remember standing on the line and singing the attic, but with people you feel really close with though, due to your love for baseball, your love for Judaism, and just like sharing a common goal. Well, before we let you go, what do you expect to see from Team Israel this year? <laughs> What should the fans look out for? I think just just to you know, following the the kind of the trend that we've seen over the years, like continuing to strengthen and build the level of play. Um, Ian Kinsler, uh, I know, will do a great job managing the team and managing the talent. And I think you're just going to continue to see progression, which we've seen over the last ten years now. This has been Jeremy Bleich, former pitcher for the Oakland A's and Team Israel and current coordinator of Major League Pitching Operations for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Thank you so much for being here. This was fun. Thank you so much uh, for having me and really appreciate the opportunity. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. 
Thanks to our guests, New Orleans Advocate, Times-Picayune Editorial Director and Columnist, Stephanie Grace, Director for the Center for Green Schools, Anissa Hemming, and former professional baseball pitcher and current coordinator of pitching with the Pittsburgh Pirates, Jeremy Bleich. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.